Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of the animals who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of the show and download podcasts of other Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The birthplace of this show was WPPB 88.3 from Southampton, New York, and I'm proud to have been on Peconic Public Broadcasting for 550 consecutive shows over 12 years. I also produce the annual New York Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, and the annual New York Cat Film Festival, sponsored by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat. Both festivals will be traveling the country in 2018 celebrating the human-animal bond while benefiting a local animal welfare group. Learn more at dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. All the Waruva canned and pouch foods for cats and dogs come in endless varieties to satisfy even the fussiest pets and use the same care and quality ingredients as food for people. The company name exemplifies the Foreman family's embrace of rescuing animals, naming the company after their rescued kitties. W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and V.A. for Vanessa. And they are passionate about good nutrition. Their caloric harmony dry food for dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually utilizes food and the quality of the protein. You'll find Waruba wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. My guests today are Dr. Nick Dodman, been here many times with so many topics to do with animal behavior and wellness and study of them. And we're going to talk today about the kinds of drugs that it's good or bad to use with your dogs, and I suppose cats as well. Lisa Lunghofer will be here from the uh, the Gray Muzzle Organization talking about a new grant cycle, giving out money to those doing good things to save the older pooches. And Laura Scanone will be here with her do- her book, The Dogs of Avalon, about the, the greyhounds in peril around the world. Hello, Dr. Nick Dodman. Wonderful to have you here. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Thank you for having me back. Well, you know, I we all love all your books, and one of the, the things that you have been a pioneer in is the using of medications for your patients, the, the dogs and cats, and for all I know, other species of animals that come under your care. And recently I did a, I think I released a show discussing travel with, with a veterinarian, and the whole issue of whether or not it was okay to tranquilize a dog during travel. And I think a lot of people don't know if it's okay. I thought at one point it was a bad idea, but then, of course, it's about the individual pet. So can we sort of jump off by talking about the topic of, let's say, the tranquilization of dogs being flown in crates in the belly of an airplane? Right. So you will read um, a lot of, websites and uh, informational pieces that just say, you know, giving um, a drug, a tranquilizer, a sedative or anything like that to a dog that's traveling on an aircraft 
is a really, really bad idea and deaths have been reported. Well, it's true, deaths have been reported, but um, that's a particular combination of the most commonly used uh, tranquilizer in veterinary medicine, which is acepromazine, okay. um, which most vets reach for first of all, um, and sometimes um, a dog's size and or anatomy. Um, so it, it really requires um, some knowledge of medicines to know what's safe and what isn't safe. Well, let me and, just and ask you this, I say, Nick. I mean, should a veterinarian not know? You obviously don't want anyone to be doing this on their own and just guessing and taking their own, I don't know, sleeping pills or Valium and giving it to a dog. But shouldn't a veterinarian know the dosage and the right kinds of medications for a, a dog who's flying? Well, the thing is that a lot of vets, um, you know, I have great respect for them, as I do for my own general practitioner who looks after my health. But sometimes um, it does require a more in-depth knowledge of a particular area. And um, sort of pharmacology is, is, I think, one of those areas where sometimes a second opinion could help the practitioner make an informed decision, unless they happen to be well-versed themselves. And I have to say that a lot of them are not so well-versed in sort of behavioral um, type medications to, you know, alter mood and address behavior problems so so we could um, we could liken that to humans right i mean there are shrinks there's msw shrinks and phd shrinks and md shrinks but only some of them are psychopharmacologists those those human medical doctors or practitioners who can recommend suggest or even prescribe drugs mm -hmm. or medications which alter people's state of mind well most um vets you know do have a sort of toolbox of things they use for sedation, um, which is different from tranquilization. Um, right. Sedation comes from the Greek word, I think, or is it Latin, sedari, which means to um, to make, to sleep, really, is okay. to, to sedate, to sleep, um, whereas a tranquilizer just means, uh, comes from, uh, this is Greek, a tranquilis, which is calm. So you can induce calmness without sedation, you can induce sedation, which might have uh, a sort of tranquilizing effect, but it, sedation is a different thing. So acepromazine, the most common drug in a veterinarian's toolbox, um, is a sedative. I mean, some people say that if you use it in microscopic doses, it can I have see. A, a sort of tranquilizer action, but that is something maybe people don't know. And there's a lot of vets who would know that you would never give acepromazine to a short-nosed that is brachycephalic dog, because that is definitely um, a problem. I would bet you, I haven't looked into the data, but when you have these you know, X number of deaths during transportation in a crate in the hold of a plane, that a lot of it would involve any one of a number of the um, brachycephalic breeds who were given the common old tranquilizer, acepromazine. Um, you know, there's even chapter, things written, articles about anesthesia of the brachycephalic right, breed and the right. sedation uh, anti-anxiety drugs that are given prior to anesthesia are very important and certain things that must be avoided and these brachycephalic breeds I mean there um, it's quite a lot of them from Boston Terrier Boxer Bull Mastiff Dog de Bordeaux Pug Shih Tzu uh, Pekingese and such like French Bulldogs yeah, I, I learned this English bulldogs, yeah, I, all the bulldogs. Isn't it yeah. not true that, that many airlines refuse to fly them at all quite wisely, probably for this reason? They, they Tranquilized or not, they cannot fly. Yeah, and also 
Right. And also, these, um, the acepromazine causes a drop in body temperature. And I know most holds these days are, you know, um, pressurized and temperature controlled, but I'm not quite sure what the temperature is controlled at. And if it was sort of sub, you know, lowish type temperature, like, you know, 62 degrees or something, and then you lower the dog's body temperature, that, that could be a problem, plus the blood pressure fall, plus in the brachycephalic dogs, the so-called brachycephalic syndrome, which I was presented with up close and personal way back when, when just after I'd graduated in 1970. Okay. And we were doing a, I was an intern, and I, we were demonstrating um, to students on a, a peaking knees, and I gave it a small injection of acepromazine because it was sort of acting up. I just wanted to calm it down a little bit. Whereupon the dog collapsed, um, turned blue, and its heart rate went down to 40. Wow. I thought we were losing it. I quickly injected atropine, and it came back up again. And that was a really extreme version of what can happen with acepromazine. Reversible with atropine, but not when it's down in the hold of the plane. So did this make you more aware throughout your your veterinary career that, that ACE is, is a drug? That I mean, I know about it. Many people who, who ride horses know that, that often the vets will use it on the, on, an, on a horse. They will ace the horse before doing some procedure to make the horse calm. And it's, it's against the, 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 the laws of, of horse showing to have any ace on a horse. And, and do, horses do get their blood and pee tested because it tranquilizes a horse. But a horse is a large animal. And tranquilized in their case is a different sort of condition than in a small dog, right? Yeah, I've been involved in a few lawsuits where um, uh, vets and trainers were organizing together to give acepromazine for, of course, medical reasons, and, and yet the horses were shown and, you know, who was right, who was wrong, that sort of thing. But I guess if you're saying what I'm saying is if you have a Pekingese, a boxer, any sort of short-nosed dog, uh, I mean, acepromazine would be contraindicated um, for, say, air travel or, and, and lots of other situations too, maybe even pre-anesthetic, maybe even except in really you know, in a controlled environment with very low doses with somebody who knows what they're doing. But, I mean, the easy rule to say is don't use ACE right. in those dogs. Right, And, and I guess... the question adju- comes, what Sorry. else could you use? And well, or the, the other thing. choice is to have these dogs not fly. Dogs do not have to fly. I mean, pigs can fly, but dogs don't have to, as it were. I mean, dogs don't have to go with their people. For many dogs, either their personality or their age or the fact that they have mm-hmm. breathing compromise, they don't have to fly with their people. Somebody could transport them across land. I mean, just yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, for me, if I couldn't take my dog in the cabin, you know, if I have a little dog that, um, you know, is permitted in, in some uh, some airlines to travel in the cabin, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. I would never put my dog in the hold, period. I mean, I would find some other way. I'd, you know, have someone look after it at home or, like you say, do overland transport to arrive there a couple of days later. I, I would not, I would just wouldn't do it for humanitarian reasons. I mean, it's a scary thing. You're in a crate in a strange place with the rumbling. I mean, it's bad enough for kids when the plane takes off and comes down your ears are popping and stuff they don't know what's going on neither to the dog so i wouldn't do it to my dog so then i know there's such a large number of alternative states promazine just want to throw out one name okay but i do caution people you know don't try this at home only do it with your vet's permission do not use your own medication if you you get your hands on it from a neighbor or something but another really good medicine for travel, which doesn't have the um, downside of acepromazine, doesn't lower the body temperature, doesn't exacerbate the brachycephalic syndrome, doesn't increase uh, vagal tone and cause bradycardia and all kinds of nasty uh, syncope events. The drug is buspirone. 
So buspirone is um, a so-called um, anxioselective. That means it selectively attenuates anxiety. Um, but it also happens to be um, anti-motion sickness and anti-emetic. Nice. So you've got a, a threefer deal there. That's of course, a good one. No one drug fits all sizes, kind of thing. So um, I would not give that. If I was the vet, I would not prescribe that drug for the first time ever in the dog's life, and then put it on a plane. Right. I would right. do a dry run. So let's you know, take try for a car the ride. The correct dose, and you know, we'll assess how it or take it for a car ride. We'll see how it does. It totally, you know, nothing's totally safe, but it's it's very very safe um, so nothing really bad going to happen anyway all right so um, let me let but, me ask you about a specific dog that that someone wrote me about um, who has mm-hmm. extreme car sickness and uh, the the young man I think is has made some very poor choices but trying hard wanting the dog to go with him in the car but um, misunderstanding the fact that the dog does have motion sickness and now has anxiety about going in the car because becomes anxious about whatever the experience is for himself, the dog, as well as the throwing up. So it's a young well, dog. Well, a wonderful drug we- to control um, motion sickness, car sickness. I mean, buspirone is, is one possibility, but there's a specific drug called Serenia. Right, but which um, was actually developed C. It was actually developed for, uh, and, and my sister tried it on her dog that, that panted and, and salivated in the car, and the Serenia didn't work at all. And I think it was developed for, well, for wasn't it involved it, it, as, it, it, for it, anti-nausea, it, it, for, for cancer treatment? You have to make diagnosis, first of all. And a lot of dogs who would pant and salivate in the car might be simply frightened of car travel. I mean, they could just be car-phobic. Yes, yes. one day your wheel went over the rumble strip Correct. And, and they got scared. Mm-hmm. And now they don't want to go. And, and all those things you just reported could be just fear of traveling, in which case um, Serenia, the neurokinin um, antagonist, is not going to work. Correct. Um, what the buspirone might. diagnose that it's a motion sickness. And if it's motion sickness, every time I've diagnosed motion sickness, which is not my you know, first job in life, I've mainly behavioral, but sometimes right. people say, oh, by the way. Right. And I have prescribed this for them. Every single time I've prescribed it has worked. Has been the Serenia or the buspirone? The serenium, that we were talking about motion sickness per se. So right. specifically for that, if the diagnosis is correct, I'm, I'm batting, um, you know, a, th- a thousand on that one. The only thing I can say about but it is a get- very, very costly drug. And I've only had it when dogs have severe uh, gastrointestinal problems. My understanding was it was developed for oncology patients that, you know, the dogs who were throwing up and getting nauseous after chemo and it helped with that. The the only reason I'm wondering about the buspirone instead, so this young dog is now terrified of the car, whether he's terrified of the feeling of being sick in the car or being in the car. So the only way he can ride in the car is in the owner's lap, which is, of course, absurd. It's a full-size young dog. It's six months or something. But obviously dogs shouldn't be in the front seat at all. So it's a dangerous place for them, much less on the driver's lap. I I've written any number I would definitely, of things about it. Yeah, what about that, putting that, it in a definitely. crate in the car? Does that help? Um, you know, some dogs have crate phobia as well. And right. I mean, that might solve your problems. It wouldn't solve necessarily the dog's problems. It could even exacerbate them. Right. I mean, it's true that some dogs, you know, if they're, you know, one of the things they don't like about car travel, I've had these dogs, the things whizzing by the window, it's just yes. kind of over. Yes, yes. You know, circuit overload. Yes. You know, if you put them in a solid-sided, very 
great, maybe even hang a towel over the back window. And if they're comfortable in a crate, it might work. It's like, you know, again, no one size fits all. There's no general state. You can't say dogs who like to ride on people's laps would do well in the crate because they, right. they might do right. exactly that the opposite way. That makes a good way. point. That makes a good point. Yes, I've had crate for so dogs as well. So would certainly be worth trying for that dog that you mentioned. And, yes. Um, it's sometimes, one thing a lot of people say, abuse prone, you know, does it really work? Is it effective? And the thing is, it is if you get the dose right. Um, and it's uh, actually much higher than the published dose. So, oh. you know, I took one dog and it had fear of traveling in the car, not motion sickness, just plain car trouble fear. Yep. And I started a statutory dose that, you know, you can find on the web or ask your vet about. And I kind of increased and increased and increased. And eventually I got to the point where the dog jumped in the car and he just went for a nice ride. That's what this guy needs. So that's really good. He needs to go to the vet and talk about buspirone. But you see, the thing is, people don't think of this as a vet issue. So they think they can solve it on their own, and they try one thing and another. This dog salivates heavily, pants, gets in his lap. Obviously, the entire thing mm. is, has become sheer misery for the dog. Well, it's, I just think it's important. The main message is that any kind of tranquilization, any kind of sedation, you need to go to your vet. And if your vet seems a bit vague or general about it, not a bad idea. Behaviorists are very hard to find. Maybe even a board-certified internist that might have a little mm. more sophistication. I'd love to talk about, with the time we have left about this wonderful first new study that you're doing at the Center for Canine Studies, where you have three thousand five hundred dogs. Uh, mine being two of them, my sisters being the other two. But I don't. The other three thousand four hundred and ninety-six are other wonderful people. Um, what is it? What's going to happen next, Nick? Uh, well, I'm talking with um, a very clever former Tufts um, um, engineering graduate who's very nifty with data. Nice. And we have all of that data, including your dog's data, stored <laughs> in a, um, a system, a data capture system called RedCap. Nice. And uh, we, I talked to him yesterday. We're downloading that data into um, a statistical package called SAS, and we've got um, – He's very knowledgeable at statistics. We have another statistician who's volunteered to help us, and we nice. may actually hire some other statisticians from a big team of five of them at UMass um, to completely analyze it. The first pass, we're just going to look at the percentages. It's just what they call descriptive statistics. You know, what percentage had this and what percentage had the other. But we've got so many dogs, thank you to people like you, that we can actually probably break it down by breed too. So wow. we could say, you know, in the golden retriever, you know, um, is there yeah, their incidence of aggression is X, um, right. whereas in the general population it's Y, and it may be more, it may be less, we don't know yet. Uh, we can see, you know, problems that travel with breeds as well as looking just at the plain old incidence itself. And then we're going to dig even deeper, so we'll look at correlations. Um, uh, there's actually a deeper level of descriptive statistics too, so if you took aggression is, you know, how, how often is the aggression? How severe is the aggression? You know, does it involve biting? Is it just growling? I mean, we can break it down that way. But then we can start correlating and say, does this, do these dogs who have, say, owner-directed aggression, do they have a higher instance of fearful conditions, which ha has been um, suggested and published before? We'd like to confirm or refute that. I mean, right. I don't have an ax to grind. Just have a look and see. Um, does separation anxiety travel with noise phobia, which has been shown before it should do. But we'll be able to look at other correlations like that as what travels with what and what travels with a particular breed and all kinds of interesting data. I think it's probably the largest study 
ever. I mean, there was a, a large 3,000-plus study in anxiety in dogs, which we will reference. Um, but that was just looking at the one thing of sort of canine anxiety. We're looking across all of the problems. So it's the biggest sort of um, overarching study. And no one's are ever you done. Are you still looking for more participants? No, the study closed on, the, you know, it's in two phases. Right, uh, right. Uh, the first, the, the, the entry closed on January the 15th, 2018. Um, the people who signed up on that day, three weeks later, would have got an email asking them to complete the second phase. And that's for the people whose dogs do have problems. And in that second phase, we're looking at right. where did they go to seek, you know, what kind of specialist or not did they seek help from, um, what kind of program was recommended, how well did it work, and they're going to rate it so that we know what works and what doesn't work in uh, different situations. Well, I think it's terrific, Nick. I really appreciate you being here and, and the work that you're doing for all dogs everywhere. So thank you so much for this advice about flying, driving, or if or not, or what to, to drug your dog with, but also for this great work at the Center for Canine Studies, which people can visit at the link that will be with the podcast of the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Nick Dodman. Keep up this great work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tracy. Take care. I'll be right back after this quick word. This show is brought to you by Halo, holistic and humane natural dog and cat foods, which are made with only whole meats, never with rendered chicken meal or byproduct meal. There are new formulations at Halo which reflect whole, holistic, and humane practices. Halo says no to factory farming, no to growth hormones, no to antibiotics, artificial flavors, coloring, or preservatives in their food, and sources cage-free poultry, pasture-raised beef, and wild-caught fish. The new Halo has no GMO vegetables. All fruits and vegetables are sourced from farmland that prohibits the use of genetically modified seeds. What's new about Halo will matter to you, farm animals, and the planet. This show is also brought to you with the support of NatureVet, a family-owned, California-based company that has manufactured natural pet supplements for over 25 years. NatureVet has a wide range of veterinarian-formulated supplements that address the full spectrum of pet health. Arthrosu's Gold Joint Supplement is clinically tested to increase mobility. Quiet Moments Calming Aid with Melatonin can reduce your pet stress during thunderstorms, fireworks, traveling, and separation anxiety. NatureVet's Grass Saver prevents yellow spots on your lawn caused by dog urine, and other innovative supplements include the ones nobody wants to talk about. A supplement to stop your pup from eating poop or out of my box if your dog has a taste for what's in the cat's litter box. NatureVet takes your pet's health seriously. They are registered and audited by the FDA and are also a member of the National Animal Supplement Council, whose NASC seal on all their labels is a symbol of quality and reliability. The NatureVet family is so sure that natural supplements can enhance your pet's health that they give a 100% money-back guarantee on any product. I am back with Lisa Longhofer from the Gray Muzzle organization, which she's been on the show before talking about these, this great work that they do to support rescues and shelters that look after the older uh, members of the, of the canine population seeking new homes. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Tracy. The Gray Muzzle grants um, went really well last year, didn't it? I mean, you, you gave away a lot of money to a lot of different groups. Do you want to kind of run through that before we talk about the new cycle of grants that, that begins right now? Sure, absolutely. Yes, we set a record last year. We awarded more than $300,000 in wow. grants 
to 50 shelters and rescues in 25 states, bringing the total amount that we have awarded in our 10 years um, uh, to over a million dollars. So we were really thrilled to, um, to be able to give out that many awards last year, and we're hoping to do even better this year. That's incredible. Well, where does this money come from? I mean, you, you, people ask for a grant and you choose the shelters that are doing the work that you think is the most cutting edge or most effective or efficient. But where do, where do you generate this money from? Our um, funding really comes from our individual donors across the country and around the world. We wow. um, have extremely generous supporters who care about our vision and of, you know, seeing a, a world where no old dog dies alone and afraid, and they have stepped up, and really the amount that we're able to award in grants every year is dependent on the amount that we can raise, and so we are very fortunate to have people who believe in our mission. Have you seen a shift, a change, uh, an increase in people's awareness of the beauty, value, and vulnerability of older dogs in shelters and rescues as time has gone on? Has it become something that has a heightened awareness? Yes, I think people are becoming much more attuned to older dogs and how much they have to offer. We did a survey of our grantees last year, and we found that, in fact, they said that they were seeing um, a lot more people being open to opening their hearts and their homes to older dogs um, they were particularly seeing more young people interested in, in adopting older dogs. And the young people talked about really wanting to to give back and to do something kind and important um, for a dog who's in his golden years. That, that not just a self-serving, oh, I want a young dog, so I'll have it for longer and it'll be, uh, I don't know, perky and, 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 uh, and puppy-like more like what can I do for this species of dog that has done so much for humans? Let me give back. Exactly, exactly. Which nice, was really nice. heartwarming to hear people, um, young people, you yes. know, expressing that reason for wanting to adopt an older dog. Yeah, you see, millennials, you guys are not what you're, what you're perhaps in, improperly um, pointed out as millennials, like it's a bad word. It's a good thing that, that there's this raised awareness. What are some of the kinds of grants that you gave last year, ones that stand out in your mind from years past, grants to, to, to groups that were doing a particular uh, kind of outreach or simply really effective in placing these dogs with good foster or permanent homes? Sure. Well, we give grants to organizations that are doing a number of different things um, programmatically related to older dogs. So some of our grantees are focused on providing dental care for older dogs. That's oh, an interesting. area of great need. Yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of old dogs come into shelters with really bad teeth, and yes. that creates all sorts of um, systemic problems for them health-wise, but also just quality of life problems with not being able to eat comfortably. Yes. Um, we have other grantees that are focused on providing medical care. We have grantees that are offering special programs like Senior for Senior Adoption Programs. Right. We have one grantee in California um, called Young at Heart, and they started um, Club Grandpa, which I think is an oh, adorable how name. Oh, sweet. Yes, and so they their Senior for Senior Adoption Program is really a strong one. They actually have volunteers that work with the adopter even after the adoption is finalized. So 
It's not just giving the senior person the senior dog and saying, here you go, you're on your right, own. Right. It's providing that ongoing social support. So it's really helping not only the senior dog but the senior person. So the, the volunteers go to the home and they help the senior person um, get out to, to um, vet appointments and to the store to get toys and food. Um, so that's a great example of the community coming together to help both the dogs and the people that love them. So when people, do you, like how many, if you've given out 50 shelters, got, got a grant, how many, how many applications were there, more or less? We got more than 230 applications last year, which was up about, I think, almost 50% from the year prior. So awareness of our grant program has really grown, and so the, the competition has certainly gotten um, greater. But we're, we're pleased that our, our fundraising efforts have also been successful so that we're able to, to award more grants to those worthy organizations that are applying. So do you, does it seem to you as though, since you've lived in this space for quite a while, that these, these groups, smaller or large groups that are focused on senior dogs or, or some aspect of their work is focused on senior dogs, are they, have they been there all along and only just now learning about the the option of getting a grant from, from Gray Muzzle, or do you think that groups are, are emerging with this subspecialty because of probably the passion of, of one director or founder? Uh, do, does it seem as though more focused um, efforts are, are being done by, by groups that, that identify themselves that way? I think we're seeing a mix. I think we're seeing some applications from organizations that have always had a commitment to senior dogs and they see our grant program as an opportunity to expand that commitment to do even more. And then I think we're seeing other organizations that um, have said, you know, wow, this, this is an area where we could, really, we could really grow, and we want to take advantage of this opportunity to actually develop a new program that will be focused on, on senior dogs. And one of the, actually, we just launched yesterday um, what we're calling our House with a Heart serious, Seriously Senior Dogs Grant, um, which is going to be a supplement to our, our current, the type, current types of grants that we give. And it's going to be focused on dogs who are 12 years and older. And it's actually a partnership that Gray Muzzle just forged with a, a senior pet, pet sanctuary called House with a Heart. Nice. And so it's it's an exciting opportunity to um, to provide support for organizations that are looking at e- you know even older dogs who are perhaps even even harder to adopt and giving them medical care and um, and also hospice care. So where is this wonderful house with the heart? Where is where is it located? The sanctuary. It's actually in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Nice. So there's an East Coast one. A lot of, sometimes a lot of these tend to be on the West Coast. I'm not sure why that is or if I'm or even if I'm wrong about that. So House with a Heart, it's a, it's an actual sanctuary where where these dogs come and spend the rest of their days. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And are those so, are there other others of those in the US or is it still very rare? There are some others. Um there aren't a whole lot of them. Um, there, there are some. And then there are some, like we have grantees who have um, hospice programs that, where they have um, fosters that are specifically designated to provide um, hospice care. 
we have one grantee, um, the Animal Rescue League of Iowa, which has um, a hospice foster program for, um, for dogs in their care. It's amazing. This, this, this micro uh, focus, like, okay, these dogs are in their last days, weeks, or months, in theory, although I've heard that when they get to a great foster home, they perk up and can live many good years yeah, that, were never, that were never uh, in, their, in their horoscope, so to speak. But it's amazing how many people are opening their homes to these much older and often infirm elder dogs that may have incontinence problems and, and mobility problems. And people take them in really in a, in a kind of St. Francis goodness of their heart kind of way. There's, there's, there, other than the satisfaction of sharing that love with the dog, it's really extraordinary, extraordinarily selfless, don't you think? Yes, it really is. Um, and we have on our, on our website information about both hospice resources and stories about people, just as you've said, who have opened their hearts and their homes to dogs who are um, facing the end of their lives. And they, um, you know, have given them all the love and the care that they could possibly um, imagine and that many of them were missing out on um, during those last um, days. Well, the... the uh... The, the beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival in San Francisco this year, which is actually going on this President's Day weekend, um, is Muttville, which is an extraordinary, um, and I'm sure you know all about it because you folks that are in the senior dog world know about each other, right? I mean, Sherry won this or was nominated for the CNN Hero of the Year Award when she was recognized for having created this sanctuary for dogs that were came into San Francisco Animal Care and Control and we're probably not going to leave alive because old dogs in county shelters are hardly top of the list to be picked, right? Right. Exactly. And a, a lovely film about um, Sid, the, the hospice dog, um, foster hospice, that is, was right. in the, the, the third annual dog film festival in New York this past December and will travel the country in 2019. And it's really very touching to see this little this little poodle type dog that's really quite an old fellow. I mean, he can, he can totter around, but he's carried a lot. And, and the beautiful quality of, of love and, uh, connectedness that, that a quite young couple have with him and giving him this inc- really high quality of life for his, his, his last period of time, which it doesn't even have to be designated as days, weeks, or months. It's just right. definitely closer to the end than to the beginning. Sure. So the sure. new grant, that, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. The new grant cycle, what kind of things are you looking, what kind of uh, topics or what kind of work are you looking to celebrate? We're really looking for applications across the board. So everything from programs that are focused on medical care to programs focused on dental care, senior for senior adoption programs, um, programs that support um, pet parents to keep their dogs with them in their homes. You know, pro, we have programs that are focused on um, people who perhaps can't afford the medical care that their dog needs and are considering giving them up. And these programs step in and provide the resources that um, the family needs to make sure the dog is, is well and can stay in the home that we're the, with the people that love him. Um, where, where he spent most of his life, and the idea of having to give a dog up at the near the end or at the end is is I'm sure very heart rending and guilt producing for the people. 
Exactly, exactly. So we are certainly emphasizing those kinds of programs. We also would love to see more applications from organizations that are providing hospice programs for senior dogs. And then we also encourage applicants to be creative. We have, um, we have one grantee that provides swim therapy for senior dogs. Nice. We have, yeah, we have another grantee that actually works with hospice programs for people, um, Tyson's Animal Rescue in Michigan. So their focus is on helping people who are in hospice care facing the end of their lives, um, relieving them of the worry and burden um, of thinking about what's going to happen to their senior dog when they die. So when the person does pass on, they take their dog into the care of the rescue and they make sure that they find that dog a forever home. That really is sensational because as people get old or are ill, even younger, the concern about who's going to take my dog, it's not going to be your brother or sister-in-law, folks, because especially with an older dog, they probably don't want it. They can't take care of it. They're not in a position to. So having these these rescues and shelters that think about that and, and provide for it is a wonderful, special, niche way of 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 contributing to to the dog human bond, right? Absolutely. Well, I think it's terrific, Lisa, and there'll be a link to the to Gray Muzzle and to the the grant process for anyone who is listening or gets inspired by this to come up with an aspect to the work they're already doing that that is focused on seniors cuz these dogs turn out to have a great deal of love and comfort and joy to give in their often quiet, sedate way and it's great that Gray Muzzle is there to make sure that more of them do not die alone or afraid. So thanks a lot, Lisa, for all the work that you're doing. Well, thank you for helping me get the word out. It's a pleasure. Take care. Hi, right, thank you. Sure thing. I'll be right back after this quick word. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He has devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family. Now he's created healthy, dry, and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein, inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey. 90% of the protein in Clean Protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in most dry cat food like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits, which can actually increase your cat's hunger. The high biological value proteins in clean protein result in your cat's appetite being satisfied longer without compromising her health. If you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet, make the healthier choice. The proof is in the protein. I am back with Laura Scanone and her really marvelous book, The Dogs of Avalon, The Race to Save Animals in Peril, a book about greyhound rescue. Uh, more or less around the world, although particularly in Ireland, but but about many other things in, in addition. Laura, welcome to the show. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book, and I'm so glad to have you here to talk about it. Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm happy you're, to be here. You're very welcome. You you started your life um, as, as an author of two other marvelous-sounding books, um, A Thousand Years Over a Hot Stove, which won a, a James Beard Award, which is a huge thing to win in the, in the cooking division of writing, and then the lost ravioli recipes of Hoboken. You happen to be a New Jerseyite. Can you talk a little about how this moment came about, which with a stove that actually was the the bridge from <laughs> from being a, a right. cooking person to being a, a, first a tentative and then a passionate animal uh, 
looker at her. Yes. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things to say. You know, for a while I, I did say to myself, why have I started with, you know, the, I saw this as a big change from writing being a food writer to writing about animals. But I've come to realize that there are really strong threads in all three books about strong women. Ah. Um, so, yes, and that, that was good when I finally realized that. Sometimes it takes a while. Um, but, yes, I was not a natural-born animal lover. I um, I had dogs. We grew up with, I had two wonderful Dobermans that I grew up with and adored. But as I often say, just because you love your own dogs doesn't mean you love other dogs. That's or other right. As, as you say in, yeah. in, your, in your introduction or forward, you say, you know, just because you love your own child doesn't mean that you love all children and want to be around them all the time, which I think is right, a really exactly. great point. You can love your individual and not love the whole species or group of same that they come from. I, I love when, when you say that, you know, people having long conversations about their pets bores you. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it seems funny coming from me, the radio pet lady. But, you know, I think there are more important things to focus on over cocktails or, or a dinner party. I mean, the world has so many things going right, and whether it's literature, art, culture, and things going wrong. Uh, we know that what that list is. So I can certainly understand that you would say that, and, and I admire it, and I admire your, your comment that you haven't shoveled money at animal welfare organizations, that your concern has been more for the children of the world. And strangely enough, right. I agree. I think as long as there are children <laughs> who are homeless and hungry, I do think that if you have to choose, if you're not able to, to be supportive in some way or another of both, that probably the human kids should win out. I mean, there are people who would feel otherwise. But I love that you say that and then launch into this enormous work of, of intellectual passion following the, the story of, of this rescuer of greyhounds. So it's, it, were there times when you thought, but is this how I should be spending several years of my life? <laughs> I absolutely did, but I think every single writer feels that way midway through a book. Um, yeah, I mean, what you say is true. I was not a natural-born animal person, and I, I, I did not like it when people would talk endlessly about their pets. I would get bored. I'm a little more tolerant now, um, but um, I guess that whole issue of how big is my circle of concern is really what the book is about, nice. where we're not just looking at our own dog. I mean, in many ways, dogs are just really like us. It's an extension yes. of ourselves. And in some ways, some ways it can be even a little crazy the way people get with that. But um, this book is very much about discovering another world of people and one particular woman who um, really was concerned about the whole world, though first beginning with animals. Um, I think that, um, well, I guess I sh you asked me about the stove, how, how this yes. happened. Yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> so being a food writer, I liked old cooking tools, and I had this antique stove, and um, I decided to sell it on Craigslist, and only one person answered. <laughs> and the person <laughs> who showed up at my door, and I really hit it off, so that tells you something about her and me, right? Right. Uh, 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 some kind of kindred spirit. And she said to me that she had a greyhound, my dog's. My sons, I had two young sons at the time, would love to meet, and we kind of became friends. And I learned that she had um, a real interest in Ireland. She was Irish-American. She had a little cottage there. And when she came back, she would always bring these greyhounds and greyhound mixed dogs because, as she explained it, no one wanted them there, and yet they were bred enormously for the racing business. So I really didn't pay much attention, and I wasn't interested. I didn't want a dog. 
But I had this son who really was a natural-born animal lover. And he really not only wanted but kind of needed a dog at a certain moment in his life when he was about in fourth grade and things were not going so great in his childhood. Um, and so, so I, he asked for one, and I was really wrong. I put him off for a long time. Uh, and I regret that. But anyway, one day... But as a, as a mom, friend. let me just interrupt. As a mom, do you think <clears> that, <throat> you know, of course, you're only thinking about your own son and your own kids, but obviously you know many other children in, in his circle and then and now. Do you think that the children who really passionately, ardently want a dog, that the parents should pay a little more attention to that? It's not really a question of, well, are you going to be responsible? Will you be the one to clean the water bowl and walk him? Do you think that there's a, a yearning do. and a need? Talk hope, about that. Yes, yes. There's so many dogs that need homes, so many animals that need help. And animals and children, first of all, I believe we're almost all humans born with a sense of animals and a sense for them that we lose as we grow yes. older. All children are focused on them and yes. notice them and feel a connection. There's yes. something so pure about that. And I think it's a wonderful part of of humanity to be connected to animals so yes and in children children are smarter than many adults in this way and they crave that connection and yes i think parents anyone who gets usually a dog for their kids if they do it the right way will always realize that the animal gave them more than they ever gave the animal so but yes so one day elizabeth sent along a very dramatic email about a dog she'd be bringing back from ireland who'd been found on the side of the road and it included the most horrific pictures. She really caught my attention. But it also included um, a, a diary and pictures that showed her dramatic recovery into this beautiful greyhound mix, an incredibly feminine and graceful dog, white uh, with black spots. And the description of her was that she was a real miracle dog because of what she had been through and, and came from. So we agreed to have her, and her name's Lily, and I definitely have... Lily in the book as sort of a warm part of our own family life and how I came to understand this unique breed. Um, but after we had it for about six months, Elizabeth gave me the chance to um, meet one of the women behind her rescue. Her name was Marion Fitzgibbon, and she'd been that president of the ISPCA, the um, Irish Protection Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Animals Prevention. Right. And... Um, her son lived in the United States not, not far from me. So I had a chance when she was visiting him to meet her. And I was, that day really um, had a huge impact on me. She was an extraordinary person. And right away I knew that, that there was something special about her. She spoke about animals with such importance and passion. She was so articulate. And I say in the book, she reminded me more of an ambassador. Yes. Uh, that would be at the UN rather than a cat lady. But at one point I said to her, I asked the question that we all ask, what about children? Why humans? Why do you give all this effort to animals? She had done incredible things in her life, just given decades of her life to helping animals of every kind. And she said to me that she believed every living being has the right to live and die with dignity. And that sentence had a tremendous impact on me. And I really, I didn't really believe it, but I, I wondered if it could be true. And so I pursued her story. And a lot, of, a lot of Marian's story in the book, as I tell it, is her standing up against a very, very powerful greyhound industry yes. in Ireland. Yes, yes. That's 
funded enormously by government uh, with a really entrenched culture and um, and why people there are just the dog is stigmatized there so the idea of outsiders is a very big theme in the book you know in many ways Ireland is an outsider of Europe greyhounds are outsiders of um, dogs just right. like pit bulls are to a right. certain extent mm-hmm. um, and and many of the people who care for animals and have this feeling for them and do this incredible rescue work are outsiders themselves and they develop um, compassion and actually I, my feeling was that Marion had this kind of radical compassion what an interesting um, phrase is that one that you've coined <clears throat> yourself I guess so um, I I was so taken by her because she her preference was animals and she said no my preference is animals I want to help animals that's what I prefer because they're at the very bottom of the ladder there'll always be people that care about children and other you know she had cancer she went to cancer survivor meetings to try to help others and she thought there were plenty of people there to do that job right but she saw animals as the least cared for beings on the planet however she also whenever she was she had an animal hotline and she was constantly going out on calls, you know, to dangerous and difficult places where animals were in distress. And, and where, she, and where big, she was in jeopardy for, for showing up and trying to extricate them, right? Yes, yes. She took a lot of risks. She was very brave. She, and, and by the way, she didn't act alone. She had a band of women that she worked with um, and they were all quite brave. But she took on the cause of, of the poor people that she met because a lot of times when suffering when animals are suffering, you'll find suffering human beings not far. And she became particularly involved with the gypsies, the Irish gypsies. They're known as travelers. And in the book, I recount the story of how she really uh, saw them in, in, a, in a much more fair way or a different way than most settled people there. And they truly are marginalized. So her circle of compassion was bigger than most people's, bigger than mine. And she really believed that through her work, she was building a more compassionate world. And th- these travelers, gypsies, which, yes, every culture has has gypsies, and they, they always are living on the fringes. It, 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 talk a little bit about how they were they were breeding dogs or having dogs, and she would buy them from them because she understood that the people – weren't in a position to just say, oh, okay, I'll give the dog up. It was one of the very few things they had of any value. Right. It's fascinating. It's so hard for us here to really understand this culture. I certainly don't. But what I do know is that um, travelers have been around for hundreds of years, and some of them say even thousands. Um, And they lived on the road, as gypsies do, um, by, for many years, with horse-drawn carriages. Yes, caravans, right. Caravans, exactly, and they were brightly painted wood things at first, and now they're more like campers, recreational right. campers. But but um, in the old days, they had horses care, you know, pull their lives along with them, and they bred these cast-off greyhounds, um, lurchers, and other dogs, and they would trade them and sell them and race them and have them in coursing events, and the same thing with horses. And it was they were deeply connected to their animals, especially the men. And but they did not give good animal care, and in some ways they they inflicted brutality on the animals. But Marion particularly befriended one group of people, and she was able to convince them to change the way they treated animals. And that's a very, I think, you know, that was a very rewarding part of the book for me to write because um, there's some dramatic moments in there 
in what she does for them. Talk, talk about this as the idea of radical compassion, that you're not only just rescuing the animal, but hoping to change the environment which has allowed that animal to be neglected or abused. I mean, I think that that educational piece of it with empathy and compassion for the people and understanding, not a judgment, not a finger pointing, but understanding it in the context of centuries of a lifestyle, much as we might go to, if you will, I'm sure it's politically incorrect to call things a third world country anymore, but let's just do it anyway. Places where animals, you know, are community animals and they're kind of kicked and starving, but the people are kind of kicked and starving too. And going into those exactly. communities, whether it's Mexico, India, wherever it may be, and not going, oh, what's the matter with these people? It's like, okay, here's the big picture. How do we improve the lives for everyone? I think from the way you depict her, um, Fitzgibbon is such a person, yeah? Yes, and you explained it very well. I think you, under, you, you understand quite well. And one of the reasons why Ireland was interesting to me is that part of the story takes place before – before it became really a modern country, yes, uh, like yes. in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And so it really was very much like the, these traditional views towards animals, as you might find in, in more rural parts of the world and developing parts of the world. But to answer your question about compassion, I discovered when I was writing this book and thinking about questions like, why do human beings feel superior to animals? Where does that come from? And I did some research and I discovered that really it's so deep in our history, this hierarchy, it goes back to Aristotle, where it's a really vertical um, idea of the world embedded into our religion and culture. It comes from the Greeks, the, um, the, the scala natura, the great chain of being where humans are at the top. Uh, I'm sorry, men, men. Right, right. Well said. Men, mm-hmm. Then women and then slaves. And then big animals, oh, I'm sorry, children are a little bit above slaves, I think. Then big animals, then small animals, then sea creatures, and then plants. And I came to see this whole spectrum of dominion. And I think this idea of radical compassion understands that we didn't, we didn't create this hierarchy where we kind of inherited it. And so we have, um, we can change it by understanding and having a sensitivity for what we all share. And do you think that that animals in the food chain, that this, as you put it so well, the spectrum of dominion and of and of this superiority and and the the negation that these lower life forms, be they children, slaves, animals, or plants, have fewer feelings, fewer less sensitivity, less of an emotional or spiritual life, that that is part of what is changing as. Uh, more humane raising of animals for for food is yes. taking hold, yes. at least in the U.S. Yes. and Great Britain, and for all I know, Ireland as well. It's an interesting point that you make that that if we are from a Greco, pretty much a Greco Christian ish tradition, right in in our philosophies and our basic beliefs, that we have to really grind our gears to get our heads up out of the sand and think differently because. Things that you just take for granted as facts or, or the way it is, are the hard ones to move because they're they're ingrained so uh, entirely woven into a belief system about how the world moves, right? Completely, completely. That's that's our Judeo-Christian roots, and actually, you know, Saint Thomas Aquinas um, adopted Aristotle's belief, and so it went through all Christianity in the Western world. 
And as you say, it's woven into the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. And and I tried to have compassion. You know, I spent time with some of the dogmen in Ireland who were deeply emotionally connected to their practices of uh, using these dogs. And a lot of them were perfectly nice, and they just saw it as part of their culture. But I think where Marion was special is that she's one of those people who was not afraid to question those assumptions. And those are special people. And she did it at great um, suffering for herself, yes. at great risk to mm-hmm. her well-being. She suffered great losses um, and lived a very difficult life. But she was driven. There was just something about her that she had to do this. And she's still there now trying to doing this work. Um as yeah. you, as you say, I mean, really in the book, it's, it's one of those speaking truth to power, money and power, both yeah. political and financial that protects the racing industry, that anyone who will stand up to that, knowing that you really are a David and Goliath, that you do it because it's the right thing to do. And, and in her case, she, she had a band of other really interesting women, a, a, a kind of highborn aristocratic British woman. So who are some of the other people? I mean, the, the book is yes, it's about greyhound rescue and what that's all that that culture abroad, which we don't know about in America. This is not Florida greyhound racing, which has its own ills. It's something much deeper and more part of a culture. But it's really right. a portrait of a woman, as you say, a really strong woman with with radical compassion. Radical, not necessarily being a good thing, right? I mean, radical being something where you can be your own worst enemy, even not diplomatic yes, enough. And at times, right? And at times we watch her and we're like, "Come on, Mary. <laughs> yeah, please don't do here. that." Right? Exactly. Don't do that. Right? But but I think what gave her strength, and and it's really important to say that there were other women who she worked yes. with, and th- that network of of women they gave one another strength and power and humor and support that made it possible to bear some of the horrible things they, they saw and the work that they did. And when, in many ways, Marion was a, is a classic hero character in that she was living a normal life, and then something changed, and she felt called to action. Yes. She couldn't help it. But she had these mentors along the way who helped her. Um, so mentors and friends. And, yes, it's a remarkable story of a little-known international network of women who address this issue of greyhound racing all across Europe. Well, it's a wonderful book. We've run out of time. The Dogs of Avalon, The Race to Save Animals in Peril, and also a biography of a really strong, terrific woman by a really strong, terrific writer. So thank you so much for being here, Laura. It's been a pleasure (laughs) talking to you about the book. Thank you, And me too. Really enjoyed it. And you. Thank you all for listening. Hug your kitties, kiss your pooches, and we'll talk again next week. Bye for now.